This is the Conduit Church Teaching Podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's our mission to be a conduit of Jesus to the community in front of us and the world around us, starting with the teaching of His Word. Enjoy the message. We have a wonderful treat for you. Donna Van Leer is going to be speaking to us today. She is an accomplished author and I wrote a book uh, not too long ago called The Time of Jacob's Trouble, which is a reference to uh, end times events. And so it's well studied, well versed in the book of Revelation. And she's going to be bringing us the word from Revelation 16. So would you join me in welcoming Donna Van Leer? Good morning. And please, if you are visiting, please come back next week and hear Darren. I know what it's like to visit a church and think, oh man, some (laughs) guest up there. I wasn't even the real guy. So my apologies. But ladies, if you are here and are interested, tomorrow at 930, we're going to be praying in here for our country, right here in this room, if you're available. Lord, thank you for giving us this time. And Holy Spirit, we welcome you in here. And I just pray that you will come and lead us and teach us and direct us in a way that each one of us can understand. In Jesus' name, amen. If you could turn to Revelation 16, and we read, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, you are just in these judgments, you who are and who were, the Holy One, because you have so judged, for they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them to drink, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. 
The great, the, the great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon men and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. So Darren took Ethan fishing and left us with Revelation 16. <laughs> so game on. We're going to do what we can. So we see that these final judgments are about to be poured out. Darren talked about the cup of God's wrath. And when God's cup is filled to overflowing with the unrepentant sins of individuals and nations, his cup of wrath will be poured out on the earth. But Darren also taught from Revelation 14, and he talked about that angel that's going to be flying through midair. And that angel is going to be warning people. And the, the angel actually says, the hour of his judgment has come. God always gives a warning before judgment. And that angel and the others in Revelation 14 are going to be warning the people in that time of great tribulation, warning them that judgment is coming. In the Olivet Discourse, Jesus gives a glimpse of that final end time society. And he tells us that it will be like the days of Noah and the days of Lot. And there's no time to get into it. But if you remember the story of Abraham, he was bargaining with God and not to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham said, what if you find 50 righteous people there? Will you destroy it? Well, you might not, might not find 45, but you might find 40. Well, maybe not 40, but, but there might be 30. And he bargained all the way down to 10 people. But God couldn't find 10 righteous people. And he said, judgment is coming. If you remember that story in Genesis 19, it says that the angels pulled Lot into his house and shut the door. And then struck the people outside with blindness. Judgment was coming. In the story of Noah, we're told that God himself shut the door on Noah and his family because judgment was coming. In Revelation 14, we read that through these angels are going to be warning people. And in the very next chapter, in chapter 15, we read this in verse 8. It says, And the sanctuary was filled with smoke. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Just as he did in the days of Lot and in the days of Noah, God will shut the door of heaven. And those final judgments will be poured out. Many people want to turn Revelation into an allegory because those words like wrath and fury and judgment and the shutting of heaven are hard to hear. They hurt our feelings. But we're told seven times that Revelation is prophecy. And in the Bible, seven is the number of completion. It's the number of perfection. So we know that this prophecy is going to be fulfilled in God's time. And the word wrath in Revelation actually means passion. Mike Coop has a passion for place of hope. 
because he loves those people so much, but he hates what addiction has done to them and how addiction has held them in bondage. This church has a passion for people in, in Haiti and Africa and Pakistan, Iraq, and other places around the world. It has a passion because they, we, we love those people so much, but we hate what slavery has done. We hate what government corruption or abuse has done. And we have a passion to, to help those people and tell them about Jesus. God has a passion for us because he loves us so much, but he hates what sin has done in our lives and to our world. And so when we think of God's wrath, we can't think of it without also thinking about his great love for us because he has to make all of this right. He has to come and make all of this new, what we have done. In Revelation 14, eight, the angel proclaims, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And what we just read in Revelation 16, 19, God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. In the Bible, Babylon is the second most talked about city next to Jerusalem. It always means a kingdom without God. Its kings were worshipped, its emperors were worshipped, not God. It's always a false pagan system. It always represents a world in love with darkness and not light. And it's interesting because Babylon is mentioned six times in Revelation, not seven. Six is the number of man. The, the Antichrist, the beast, is given the number 666. In Genesis 11, we see the beginning of Babylon as the people began to build the Tower of Babel. They wanted it to reach the heavens. It said, we want a name for ourselves. And that's the key. God wanted them to spread throughout the earth, but they said, no, we'll do it our way, not your way. We want a name for ourselves, not your name. Babylon will be the final economic, governmental, and religious world system. And we'll read more about that in Revelation 17 and 18, and we'll learn of its final destruction. But in chapter 14, verse 8, we read that it will be marked by sexual immorality. It says, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the word there, the wording of it in Greek, actually means both a spiritual immorality because it will be a faithless society. People will not be worshiping God. They'll be, we know from the Bible, they're going to be worshiping the Antichrist. They're gonna be worshiping the beast. And the wording there also means a physical sexual immorality. We can feel the shadow of that end time society over us now in our world because we have spiritually pushed God to the margins. And we have been in an open rebellion against God for decades. We've said to God, we'll do it our way, not your way. We'll do it according to our rules, not your antiquated ones. 
We live in what's called a postmodern society, one that's based on feelings and our personal truth, not based on God's word. A recent survey in partnership with George Barna revealed that rather than transforming the culture around us, that American Christianity is rapidly conforming to the values of the post-Christian secular culture. And the survey found that 52% of evangelicals don't believe in absolute truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, but over half of us don't believe that. 48% believe that a person who is good enough or does enough good works can earn eternal salvation. 61% do not spend regular daily time in God's word. One-third to one-half embrace a variety of beliefs and behaviors counter to biblical teaching and belief. 43% believe Jesus sinned while on earth. 58% believe the Holy Spirit is merely symbolic. And 44% claim the Bible is ambiguous in its teaching about abortion. There are many more statistics, but George Barna says that the shift away from Scripture has contributed to the development of a new moral code among Christian churches. But you know, shifting away from Scripture didn't happen open, overnight, but it does have to happen if you're going to live in a Babylon society. Scripture has to be diminished, and God has to be weakened. A.W. Tozer said that in the years following World War I that there became an epidemic of popular evangelism. And the key words were believe, program, and vision. Men talked about a big, lovely Jesus, and Christ became a useful convenience. In the early 1900s, William Jennings Bryan retired from politics and he started warning people about the teaching of evolution. And at one point he said, we send our child to college as a Christian and they come home an atheist. He was sounding the alarm until his death in 1925, which was 95 years ago. In the 1920s, our seminaries became cap captivated by what's called the German school of higher criticism and it taught that the Bible is, is, is not God's revealed word to us, but rather it's our search for him, making the Bible full of myths, fairy tales, superstitions, and errors. R.A. Torrey died in 1928, and he was already sounding the warning signal about what the seminaries were teaching. Francis Schaeffer said in the 20s and 30s that mainline denominations had been corrupted and abandoned scripture. Peter Marshall, Leonard Ravenhill, and many other pastors were sounding the alarm in the 40s that our biblical standards had been lowered and no nation makes progress in a downward direction. And that downward direction propelled the rise of humanism between the First and Second World War. Talking about the Roman Empire, Francis Schaeffer said that a humanist belief in man led to a society devoid of any standard of right and wrong, which resulted in a moral rotting away that ultimately destroyed the empire from within. 
The slogan for the American Humanist Society is good without a God. Man is the focus. Man is, is exalted. Man is capable of perfection through reason and education. Faith is condemned. Absolute truth and the divinity of Jesus is, re is rejected. The existence of God is meaningless. There have been three humanist manifestos in 1933, 73, and in 2003. And in 1973, it said in part, no deity will save us. We must save ourselves. If you want a Babylon society, you have to get rid of God. In 1983, John Dunphy wrote an article for the Humanist magazine titled, A Religion for a New Age. And he said, I am convinced that the battle for humankind's future must be waged and won in the public school classroom. And he listed those classrooms from daycare all the way up to the university level by teachers who correctly perceive their role as the proselytizers of a new faith. The classroom must and will become an arena of conflict between the old and the new. The rotting corpse of Christianity, together with all its adjacent evils and misery, and the new faith of humanism. So their plan to get rid of God began in the classroom. In 1962, prayer was removed from the public school classroom, and in 1963, Bible reading was removed. Education expert Dr. William Jaynes is a professor at California State College at Long Beach. Since 1963, Dr. Jane said there have been five negative developments in public schools. They are academic achievement has plummeted, including SAT scores, increased rate of out of wedlock births, increase in illegal drug use, increase in juvenile crime, and a deterioration of school behavior. And he said, so we need to realize that these actions do have consequences. When we remove that moral fiber, that moral emphasis, this is what can result. Other facts that Jane's included was a comparison between the top five complaints of teachers from 1940 to 1962. I asked my mom, who's in her 80s, I said, what would get you in trouble when you were in school? She said, well, if we were talking or if we got out of line, if we ran in the halls, if we threw spitballs. And she said, oh, boy, we could, we'd get in all sorts of trouble if we were chewing gum. She got every single one of these. Since 1963 to the present, the top five complaints of teachers are rape, robbery, assault, burglary, and arson. And Dr. Jaynes accumulated his data from the federal government. He's with a California state college. He's not with a Christian college. It wasn't a Christian survey, a Christian study. He said there's consequences for removing the moral fiber. Ten years after removing prayer and Bible reading in school, our nation legalized abortion. And today we've killed over 62 million babies. The Bible says that the blood of Abel cried out to God from the ground. So what must the cries of the blood of 62 million babies sound like to God? But if a society wants to remove God and it starts in the classroom, it has to remove every last trace of God from that classroom. 
1980, the Supreme Court stopped the posting of the Ten Commandments, and this is what the Supreme Court said. If the posted copies of the Ten Commandments are to have any effect at all, it will induce the school children to meet, to read, meditate upon, and perhaps venerate and obey the commandments. However desirable this might be as a matter of private devotion, it is not a permissible state objective. If the Ten Commandments are hung in school, children might actually read them and obey them. And that's not a permissible state objective. The result of humanism has been the rapid secularization and paganation of our culture. And it's happened with not much of a whimper from the church, which largely abandoned teaching the whole council of scripture in the 1920s. The 1960s saw the end of prayer and Bible reading in school, and it saw, it saw the rise of the sexual revolution with its motto of, if it feels good, do it. My rules, not yours, God. Remember, in a Babylon society, you have to push God out, and sexual immorality has to rise. It has to be man's systems and rules. Pornography began to rise in the late 1960s, and today America is the number one maker and consumer of pornography. In 2017, Google released its end-of-year searches, and the word God and Jesus were not found in the top 100 searches, but pornography sites were found in the top 10. To have a Babylon society, man has to forget God, and churches have to be seen as unimportant and unnecessary. In 1983, Alexander Solzhenitsyn received what's called the Templeton Award, and he said in part, more than half a century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of older people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that have befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this happened. Further into his speech, Solzhenitsyn said, the West is slipping toward the abyss. If he was alive today, he would say the West has fallen into the abyss. When the church compromises on what the Bible says and society rejects God, pushing him out and away, God lets individuals and nations have what they want. It's what Romans 1 calls the wrath of God. Now, we like to think of the, the wrath of God as what we just read in Revelation 16, fire and brimstone and the pouring out of his wrath. And that is the active wrath of God. But the Bible also has something called the passive wrath of God. And that's what we see in Romans 1. It's God withdrawing his favor and his protection and letting people and nations experience the, the consequences of their sins and rebellion. It's him giving them over to themselves. Beginning in verse 18 of Romans 1, we read that the wrath of God is revealed against those who suppress the truth. Not a truth, not truth in general, not personal truth, the truth. Jesus is the truth. 
verses 19 and 20, it says that people know the truth because God has made it plain to them from the beginning. The Bible says that God has set eternity in our hearts. We know deep inside that God is there because he has set eternity in our hearts, but many suppress that truth and they don't want to acknowledge it. Verses 21 and 22 says that even though they knew God, they wouldn't glorify him, they wouldn't worship him or thank him. And because of that, their thinking became futile and they became fools, but they claimed to be wise. God doesn't force himself on anyone. He won't force himself on any nation. But because people and nations won't glorify him, they won't worship him, they won't thank him, we see that he lifts that hedge of favor and protection. And he allows sin to flourish in the form of a sexual revolution. Verse 24 says, their hearts were filled with the sinful desires for sexual impurity, and God let them have those desires. Verse 25 says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and, and worshiped the creature rather than the creator. The Bible says that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, but our culture says, uh-uh, my body, my way, my truth. You're not Lord of my life. I am. We exchange the truth about God for a lie and we worship ourselves. We worship the create the creature instead of the creator. And because of this, God lifts that hedge a little bit more in verses 26 and 27. It says, God gave them over to shameful lusts. They wanted more sex. And the Bible says they gave up natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. But all this sex still isn't enough. So God lifts that hedge some more because it's what people want. They don't want him. Verse 28 says, and because they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. The word knowledge there means acknowledge. It means recognize. When we get to the point where, we won't, where we've pushed God out and we won't acknowledge him, we won't recognize him for who he is or, or for what he's done, the Bible says that he will give us over to a depraved mind. If you look the word depraved up in the dictionary, it will say unfit, not standing the test. There should be a list of synonyms there, and you'll read immoral, abandoned, perverted, degenerate, wicked, sinful, vile, shameful, and there are many more. And it's because of this depraved mind that we're given over to. When we're in this condition, the Bible says that we do things that ought not to be done. And verse 29 through 31 calls them dishonorable passions and all manner of unrighteousness. Verse 32 says this about that Babylon condition. It says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. It's a society that applauds sin. 
Romans 2 goes on and it, it uses the word practice in relation to, to those sins three more times. We all sin, but the Bible says it's the practice of sin that brings death. According to Paul in, in Romans 1, sexual immorality outside of God's boundaries and outside his will, that's not the most primary or most offensive sin to God. The most offensive sin to God is not acknowledging him. It's arrogantly rejecting the knowledge of him. And sexual immorality is just a, a symptom of that sin. And we read in Revelation, we read throughout the Bible that the characteristic of that end time society and as we march toward Babylon the Great, we feel that shadow over us today because we are living under man's systems and rules. Jesus is not here ruling us yet. We are still under man's system. But what we're experiencing is only a fraction of what that end time society will be like. It will be a faithless society that rejects God's will for their souls and their bodies. And the Bible tells us that one day the door to the sanctuary of heaven will be closed. And Babylon, man's perfect society, his utopia without God will be destroyed. But in Revelation 18.4, we, we hear a voice from heaven calling out and saying this regarding Babylon, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. We're supposed to be a set apart people. And God is still calling us out of this Babylon culture. George Barna says that your life becomes radically different when you allow God to break you of sin, self, and society. I said that one day the sanctuary to heaven, the door will be closed and God's final judgments will be poured out. And that may sound harsh to us in our Western culture. But when the first century Jew read that, the first century believer, they saw the sanctuary in heaven. They saw the temple. They saw the Ark of the Covenant. They saw the kingdom of God and they knew the kingdom was coming. When the persecuted church all around the world reads Revelation, they see heaven opening up and they see Jesus coming back. They see the bride of Christ coming with him. The kingdom is coming. The Old Testament prophets wrote about it. Jesus himself spoke about it. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. He taught his followers to pray, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of heaven will one day be on earth. Everything that's in heaven will be brought down. If we're a true believer in Christ, we're part of the kingdom of God, but that kingdom isn't here yet. But it's coming. And we know that that gives us hope. It gives us hope for Tuesday. 
It gives us hope for one month from now. Because we know that this sin-sick Babylon world will one day come to an end. Because the kingdom is coming. One day God's final wrath will fall. But right now the door of heaven is open for all who would repent and call on his name. If you're here today, if you don't know Jesus and you want to know Jesus, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. If you're watching today from home, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And you know what's awesome about the Bible is that in Genesis, it starts with a wedding. God walks the bride to her groom in the garden. And in Revelation, the Bible ends with a wedding. Jesus will celebrate the feast with his bride in heaven. And then she will come back with him as he sets up his kingdom on earth. And you can be part of that kingdom. If you're here today and you want to know Jesus, just pray this, just pray this in your heart with me. Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner and I need you. And I repent of my sins and declare that you are Lord and Savior. And I believe, Jesus, that God raised you from the dead. And I want you to be the Lord of my life. Please give me the power of the Holy Spirit to lead me as I walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.